breathe. I agree. I think I think maybe it had something to do with just you know increased biomechanical efficiency. But at the same time, like if he felt better because it felt like he could breathe more, it's just going to make you feel better. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Matchbox Podcast, powered by Ignition Coach Co. I'm your host, Adam Saban, and on the show this week, we're answering some listener questions on whether manipulating your position on the bike can improve breathing and performance, and also what to consider when preparing for ultra racing. Today's show is also brought to you by Flow Formulas. We're already one month into 2024, which means those goal events are creeping ever so much closer. Get on top of your nutrition game early by taking advantage of some of the best sport-optimized drink formulations out there. Head over to floorformulas.com today and use a discount code MATCHBOX when checking out. As always, if you like what you hear, please share this with your friends and leave us a five-star review. And if you have any questions for the show, you can drop us an email at matchboxpod at gmail.com with email title, the Matchbox Podcast, or you can head over to ignitioncoachco.com and fill out the Matchbox Podcast listener question form. All right, let's get into it. Okay, so this first question this week we've got from Scott. Scott says, I just finished an FTP test and while about halfway through, I saw that I was hunched over a little bit with my head down, breathing very hard. I sat up to get a drink and realized how much easier it was to breathe, so I finished the effort with my back straight, head up, and basically keeping my windpipe in a straight line. That's got to be worth a couple watts, right? I really enjoy both podcasts. Keep up the great work. Uh, So, you know, kind of talking about posture on the bike. Mm. relative to this is a good know, question well this is definitely not scott mcgill that wrote this question <laughs> <laughs> it is not yeah uh people have asked me to do videos on breathing before and i you know i think that's an interesting topic that people would would be interested in but i try to do research into breathing and how it affects cycling performance and there's i just didn't think there was enough research to make an entire 15 minute video about uh apparently uh steven seiler's been doing a lot of research with breathing rate uh mm-hmm. like yeah. like like he's he's almost i've heard him like briefly talk about it on some podcasts but he's uh he said that like breathing rate is could be a new metric like that would be right there with heart rate and watts hmm. you might have your your breathing rate like how many breaths per minute yeah. you're taking which was yeah no there's a there's a way to you know there's obviously ways to measure breathing rate and just like your heart rate goes up with intensity your breathing rate goes up as well so you can kind of you know theoretically you could find the point at which you hit lt1 and lt2 with your breathing rate so wow interesting yeah but that's not that's not answering this person's specific yeah, question. Yeah. <laughs> wow, it didn't, take um, us lo- it didn't take us long to get down a rabbit hole. Two minutes, mm-hmm. we're already off topic. Right, that's great. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, is have I seen any research to suggest that um, being more upright or maybe opening your chest up or something along this line increases power output? I'm going to be honest, I haven't. Um, so it's it's really hard for me to say conclusively that that did anything at, other than maybe it was psychological or maybe I'm wrong and there was something physiological that was going on that improved your power output. Um, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's just hard for me to say right now because I haven't I haven't seen research on it. Well, we it, when there's not research, you just go based off of anecdotal evidence, right? 
<laughs> and this guy obviously has some anecdotal evidence that he felt better. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I, they, what, what, how would you test this? You do one, uh, do an FTP test hunched over and an FTP test straight up. Like, so it sounds like this guy was mid FTP test when he tried this and it worked better for him. Yeah, I'm curious if his power went up. Like, if you felt better, that's one thing. But if your power went up, that's a whole another thing. Yeah, he doesn't give any any data to back that up. Uh, you know, it's just it just he just says he felt better. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's the, I mean, it's hard to know in this case too. Like, is it because he's actually uh, breathing in more oxygen, or is it because his posture was just uh, you know like biomechanically more efficient? This is what I'm going to say about breathing, um, and this is something that we learned back in. X fizz when I was in college, uh, your, the amount of oxygen you can get into your lungs is usually if you're a healthy person, not a limiting factor for endurance exercise. You would think that it would be right. Like if you, you, you would think that, Oh, the it's a, it's an aerobic sport. The amount of oxygen I can get into my lungs is, is important. And I'm not saying it's not important. If you have bad lung function for whatever reason, it could be a limiting factor. But for most healthy people, the amount of oxygen you can actually get into your lungs is not the limiting factor. The limiting factor is delivering that oxygen from the lungs to the muscles through the cardiovascular system. So I'm skeptical that anything that you did to improve your breathing actually improved your performance. That's not to say that's not to say that. I'm right about this. Like I'm, I'm fully accepting that I could be dead wrong about this and improving your breathing has a huge impact on your performance. But I, I'm just saying I'm skeptical. Yeah, but it, it could be, you know, may, maybe, it, you know, maybe, I mean, like what you're saying is like it, maybe the increased oxygen, you know, access to oxygen d- didn't actually affect how his body was uptaking that oxygen and, and utilizing it. but. I mean, you know, like if if you hold your breath for three seconds during an interval, which mm-hmm. isn't very much, I mean, you're only reducing your your oxygen intake, you know, marginally over the course of a four minute interval. But it like makes you feel like anxious. Like you're like, oh, my gosh, I like like if I try to take a gel in or something like that and my like I can't breathe out of my nose very well for yeah. that, like four or five seconds that I can't breathe. It's like you feel like you go into like panic mode. Well, I. This is why I say within reason, like if you have normal lung function, obviously, if you hold your breath, you don't have normal lung function at that point because no oxygen is getting to your lungs, right? It's got to be sure. with it. It's got to well, be I'm within talking, the I'm normal seconds even. Yeah, but I, I'm, I'm saying it's got to be within the normal healthy range of lung function. If you're physically not breathing at all, that's not within the normal healthy range of lung function. So, so in this case, though, if, if he was constricting his airway because of his position on the bike, wouldn't that be decreasing his normal? Uh, it could be then? again. Does it could being be hunched over actually decrease the amount of oxygen. That's like, that's I mean, also I'm doing it that's, right now. And yeah, it, that's I also like a I great. Can, I feel like I can breathe totally fine. If I'm I know over. that's that, that's also a great point, Drew. I, I first of all, I don't think I don't the. Think it, I don't think it's the air. I think it's just that when he changed his position on the bike, he probably <clears> felt better because of the where his the legs position. were relative to his pedals. Yeah. So depending on what his position is, I mean, this is the reason why some riders have such a hard time during time trials is because Mm. their, you know, their hip angle is reduced too much. And then they, 
they can't put out the power. I mean, yeah. that could have been the reason right there. It could have been his hip angle yeah. and it didn't have that's anything to do with his loss. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. 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 Although I, I find it hard to believe that if you are doing a power test that you would reduce your hip angle that much, but I don't know. In a power test though, it like aerodynamics literally do not matter at all. So he should just do whatever feels the best and what gets the most power, right? Like in a race, sure. you can yeah. make the argument of like, well, I'm not trying to put out the highest power. I'm trying to go the fastest. Mm-hmm. That's not the case in an FTP test. So I could see where they, there's two different, like in different, different scenarios require different, um, yeah, I don't know. Different I mean, I'll just go back I to guess. his email. He says, <clears throat> I sat up to get a drink and realized how much easier it was to breathe. So I, I mean, I, I know like, Same I agree. I think, I think maybe it had something to do with just you know, increased biomechanical efficiency. But at the same time, like if he felt better because it felt like he could breathe more, maybe he wasn't actually breathing more, but if he felt like he could, that's going to yeah. like, that's going to yeah. ease your tension so much. It's going to make, you know, yeah. it's, it's just going to make you feel more, uh, you know, like it's just going to make you feel better. I mean, that's what he says. Yeah. Fitzgerald talks about this thing and is one of his running books called relaxed, smooth ease, yeah. I think is what it's yeah. called where like you, it's like you get into this groove and it's you're in like this natural rhythm and you don't it's not forced because when you have to force something, it's like you're tense and you're. But if you like take a deep breath and kind of like release your like loosen up your shoulders and loosen up your back and like, I don't know, like get a little bit more relaxed on the bike, that's actually going to help you <clears throat> perform better. Yeah. So actually interesting. I kind of forgot about this till just now. Uh, <clears throat> I've been experimenting with a nasal dilator lately. Because I like literally can't breathe out of my nose. Is that like a tube right now? Put up your nose. What is that? No, it's not. It's I mean, no. So like you see, like like Nino Schurter or some of the guys will wear like a nasal dilator strip. It's just like a looks like a little band aid they wear on their nose, and that just it just kind of like keeps the your nostrils like flared out. Um, Sure. Like what happens with me when I breathe in through my nose? My both my nostrils just like immediately clamp shut, so I just like can't breathe Mm -hmm. through my nose. So I've been I've been experimenting with this. It's called the Rhino Med turbo or something like that turbine get up in turbinator something like that yeah so you stick it in your nose i think i've seen those and then it and then it ends up looking like you have like a bull ring uh-huh. uh like nose piercing yeah. um but it's got like two little uh like round features that go into your nose and like keep your your uh, nostrils dilated yeah I've seen and those. what i found is <clears throat> so i've only done I've only done is this one because, is hard this because of your uh, is this because of your former career in boxing? You've just had so many blows to your nose that it's just mm-hmm. not as functional. No, I've never I've never gotten into boxing, but I've I've been interested in it lately. Boxing, so yeah. Oh wow! Or just MMA fighting in general. Wow! Um, <laughs> Adam retires and he takes up boxing. <laughs> Nice. Just for the training, because the the training is so intense. Like I yeah, just, you, I, I want to subject myself. You to watch training. Rocky, and like all you want to do is go to the gym and punch a bag. Like, come on. Sure. Uh, but anyway, so yes. so I've been experimenting with this nasal <laughs> nasal dilator, and I've only done one hard workout with it, and it was a uh, it was actually a fat bike race last weekend. So I've only got like one hard effort with it. I'm going to do another hard effort today after this uh, after we get done recording. Um, but what I found for the for the easier workouts, like my endurance workouts, I, I, I'm able to get into that like flow state, like that relaxed state you're talking about that match Matt Fitzgerald was talking about way easier because I, I like, I have to think about breathing even less now because I can mm. breathe through my nose and my mouth. I can like take in a gel without like 
literally feeling like I'm going to suffocate. It just makes getting into that like fl- flow state of endurance a lot easier. And it's really cool. Like I, it's something that I haven't really tapped into before. Um, wow. So I think there is something to that, like the whole breath work and, and like m- moving from conscious breath work to like subconscious breath work. Uh, I, I, I think there's something to it. It's, it's really cool. Well, there's a lot of research about how uh, nose breathing is better for you than mouth breathing. I know. I just have never been able to okay. actually yeah. experience that. <laughs> well, it's good that you're trying to fix that. Um, I haven't tried sleeping with it yet because that is like, that's kind of the next level. Like, have you ever sure. seen this, those products where they like tape your mouth shut and you're yeah. supposed to like only nose breathe at night? Mm-hmm. I literally would have died if I did that before. Wow. I mean, probably not actually. I'm, I'm sure. I, my body I have actually, you know, I have actually tried taping my mouth shut at night. Mm. Um, with success? I, I don't know. I mean, I'm a nose breather. I'm not a mouth breather. So I don't know if it okay. actually, I don't know if it matters for me because I I've never breathe through, this. I breathe through my nose anyway, shut. but my, my girlfriend will tell me that there are points in the night where I start breathing out of my mouth. I'm not really snoring, but I'm just breathing heavily out of my mouth. So it's like, maybe I'll try to fix that with the mouth taping thing. I don't know if it's worth it for me, but yeah, the um, weird thing is like, I don't snore or anything, but I, okay. Yeah. I'm just like maybe such a heavy mouth breather, breather at all times. My body's just used to that because I never breathe through my nose. Sure. Um, I should start wearing this thing like even in the daytime. I don't know. I haven't done that. So but going, going back to this guy's kind of question, have you ever heard of – I have heard writers say this. I want to know if you guys have heard writers say this. They prefer wider handlebars either on a mountain bike mm. or on drop bars because they feel like it opens their lungs up. Yeah, I have heard that. I've heard that. Yeah, I don't I don't think that I don't think that's grounded in anything, to be honest with you. I don't think it's doing what they're thinking it's doing. And I think even if it was, it wouldn't be helpful. That's, that's my I think opinion. what they're feeling is maybe a release of tension in their like shoulders and their upper back. Mm-hmm. And since it's all part of the, you know, your your upper trunk, like it's kind of related to like your um, you know, diaphragm and rib cage. Mm-hmm. Like if you release the tension of that, like maybe it feels like you can breathe better or like you have uh less constricted breathing but like you're saying it maybe is not the case like if you were to hook them up to a um i don't know what what device do they use for measuring uh breath and like volume are you talking about like measuring vo2 max is that what you're talking about mm, i mean i guess it'd probably be the same device anyways if you were to if you were to somehow measure what their volume of air intake was it may not be different but it might feel different that's what i'm saying yeah which is also probably what scott here was experiencing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I think if it's a, if like Drew said, if it's a power test, whatever is making it easier for you to complete the power test at the highest power possible, do that. Um, that being said, I, you know, I don't know what kind of racing this person does. If they do a type of racing where aerodynamics matters, it may be beneficial for them to practice doing hard efforts in a hunched over position where hypothetically they might not be able to breathe as well, but yeah. I, I tend to agree with that because like for my athletes that are off-road athletes where we're training specifically for mountain bike racing, even though they might train on the road, I'd still rather them do their power test on their mountain bike. Mm-hmm. On the road is fine, you know, like I, so we can sure. get accurate data. Um, just so we're, we're using the same position that, they, that they're going to be using on race day because, you know, like otherwise, like, I don't know, why, why don't you just go do a power test on like an assault bike? You could probably get a higher output if you're doing it on an assault bike. I don't you know, even but, know what an assault bike is. It's like one of those like CrossFit type bikes where you like push and 
pedal oh, with your arms yeah it's like oh okay you know or like do your power test on a freaking beach cruiser where you're sitting straight up it's like i don't you might be able to be get better. you might be able to get the highest power output doing it that way but like is it no. relevant <laughs> maybe not uh, uh i, I, I would their, be interested to see if you bike. could get a higher power output on an assault bike maybe you could since you're using your arms as well the beach cruiser definitely not i don't know man those those like uh those <laughs> Banana seats, yeah, those super comfortable. You got like infinite seats. positions. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if that was at all helpful for this person, but it's my two cents. Cool. Okay, we can uh, let's move on to Brian's question. Hello, Adam and crew. I'm afraid to tell you all of my stats because Dylan may say that I'm part of the RRP Rider crew, but it's true. I'm 43 years old, mid-pack privateer with over 10 years of riding across a few different disciplines. My time available to ride in the week is usually around 10 to 12 hours. For this season, I have two main goals, a 100-mile gravel race in May that I do every single year, and a 1,000-kilometer ultra called Cross Andes in late November. Any advice in structuring a season that would run this long? When should I start training for the ultra? Any advice for preparing for an ultra that will likely take me four to five days? Mm. Yeah, I don't have any advice. Sorry. <laughs> don't Man, do <laughs> tra- training training for ultras is interesting because so many of the demands of normal racing and I'll even throw long distance racing like unbound in that category just does not apply to ultras. I, if you're doing it an ultra, if you're doing it right, you should never be going over threshold once, right? right? So it it kind of puts into question how how important these intervals are i i think they are still important because if you if you raise your ftp theoretically you're going to raise everything so you're also going to raise your i don't know 20 hour power or however long this person is on the bike for um however i do think that it's probably less important and needs less emphasis than for your standard racer and more of the emphasis should be placed on how do we get as much volume as possible I feel like the biggest thing with those types of events is nutrition. I mean, like, but we talk about nutrition so much for even, like, even normal Uh, racing. But for those, it's like, you're not even, like, fueling for the race, but you're fueling for, like, like the recovery and the race. Like, all, Mm -hmm. like, from the start of the race, you're already fueling for the race and the recovery. Because, like, you have to be able to recover so quick between the days, assuming, I, I don't know if you stop between these. I mean, six days... Sounds Usually, like you, I mean, you're you trying not stop. to. You're trying to minimize the amount of downtime you have because it's just start to finish is your cumulative time. There's not stages right, here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds um, rough. Four yeah, days I mean, without there's sleep. Also, there's also like the aspect of training in a state of hyper sleep deprivation. You know, like mm-hmm. if you're trying to finish in four to five days, you're probably sleeping only a few hours a night at most. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're only sleeping an hour at a time. I don't know. Um, I think there's something to subjecting yourself to at least some of the conditions. If you're not, if you've not, if this is your first, first ultra, if, if it's not your first ultra, maybe you don't have to do this, but if it's your first ultra subjecting yourself to things like riding at night, um, riding your bike while it's fully packed at night, uh, so basically riding your bike at night and sleeping for an hour, then waking up and riding again, you're like, like kind of exposing yourself to some of the environments or, you know, conditions that you'll be training in. Because otherwise, you're you're everything's going to be a shock to the system. You know, like you can train, like you'll probably be fine physically, 
like you'll be fit enough to complete it. But it's like, can you complete it while also, you know, in a state of sleep deprivation and, you know, riding through the middle of the night, not knowing when your next uh, fuel stop is going to be um, like there, there, there are a lot of other aspects to racing ultras. And I think that's what's really cool about it. And that's what like hooks people on it. It's not just like the ultra distance. It's like all the other aspects that go into it. So like Hell Week on a bike, like what the name is. is. You've never heard oh. of Hell Week? I, I thought you were talking about a bike Hell Week is like, or like yeah. the one week Navy SEALs training where like they only get, I don't know, two hours of sleep every night. And they're so sleep deprived by the end of it that they're like, they're hallucinating. hallucinating. And stuff. So yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm going to make an argument that that, I don't know, maybe that's good for mental toughness or trying to prove how manly you are or something. That is not good training, intentionally sleep depriving yourself. And I see where you're coming from, Adam, where it's like, oh, you're going to be sleep deprived during the race. You should try training sleep deprived. Um, I don't, I, again, this is where there are a lot of topics on this podcast that I'm going to be honest, there's not a lot of research on um, mm-hmm. that I think I've done a video on how sleep deprivation affects cycling performance. And I mean, shocker, it affects cycling performance. (laughs) Um, So, you know, in, in general, as a general rule of thumb, I don't think sleep deprivation is ever a good thing, including with the Navy SEALs example. I think that's kind of dumb. I agree. I'm not saying do this on the regular. I'm saying do it once before the race. So you have an idea of what, you're going to be up against. Yeah. And it doesn't mean like you don't have to yeah. go four days doing that. I'm just saying like, you know, maybe you go yeah. to bed at eight o'clock one night and you wake up at two in the morning and go mm-hmm. right outside for a couple hours. That's like, I'm not, yeah. I'm not sure. You know, I, I just, I, there, there are aspects of ultras that people underestimate being a huge component of the ultra mm-hmm. challenge that if you're not prepared for that, if you don't know what to expect, it might not ever come down to physical fitness. It's going to come down to all these other aspects that we're not prepared for. I I completely agree. I I think I've told this story either on this podcast or bonk bros, but I did the 24 hours of old Pueblo one time solo. Uh, Mm. So 24 hours solo mountain bike race. And I got, I'm used to having a regular bedtime at like nine to 10 o'clock. And I usually sleep eight hours so I, I'm very regular with my sleep, and I will say that I got I got tired. Not I, I did get physically tired, but I'm talking about also I got sleepy in the middle of the race, in the middle of the night. So you know I, that's one thing that Tyler Pierce has said about is an advantage for him for ultra racing is that he's already used to sleep deprivation because he has trouble sleeping anyway. So sleep deprivation is not an issue for him. Yeah, and I would yeah. Um, and again, like even just riding through the night, mm-hmm. if, if you're not used to riding with headlights and like that being your, your, uh, guide, you know, like it's part, part of probably why you got tired is cause you probably weren't used to night riding. I don't know how much night riding you're doing, I, but like the sun yeah. goes down, like your melatonin levels increase, mm-hmm. um, you know, and like you're, if you're not used to that and I'm not saying again, do this on the regular, but like, just get a sense of what that feels like. So all the other variables during the race don't come crashing down on you. And like now all of a sudden it's two in the morning on day three and you're like, oh, I've never, never ridden through the night before. I've never ridden on three days without sleep. Like there's a lot of factors. Yep. 
Now and the, it's in the Andes. I don't know where <laughs> Brian lives, but I mean, could potentially be a completely foreign country to you too. So I think we actually got away from his original question because if you remember, his original we question did. was about <laughs> how to deal with a long season, but then he threw the the ultra distance in there and, and we got yeah. all th- thrown off. And who knows, may- maybe maybe Brian's already a seasoned ultra. Yeah, maybe that was so maybe everything we said was not useful <laughs> whatsoever. For but him. He, he does want advice in structuring a season that would be this long. So, you know, first event being in May, last event being end of November. When should he start training for the ultra and any advice? So like we gave the advice about prepping for the ultra. I, I think that the obvious thing to do, and it's even more obvious to me because we're talking about ultras, which are so stressful on the body, is that when you finish the ultra, you need to take a significant rest period off the bike before you start prepping for the next one. And that's how you're going to have a long season of ultra racing is you well, need the, the to first take race a- is only 100 miles. Well, that's not even an ultra. I know. So he's doing a 100 mile gravel race in May and then an ultra at the end of November. Oh, all right. Well, okay. So, and those are his only two races on the calendar, this hundred mile race and then an ultra two goals. Maybe he's doing, you know, a dozen other races, but these are the two main goals. (sighs) Okay. I mean, I would, I would peak for the hundred mile gravel race as if it's a normal race that you want to peak for. And then I would still take a rest period. You don't need to take a prolonged rest period because it's only a hundred mile race, but I would take a rest period off of that peak. And then immediately following that, I would start training for the ultra. Yeah. And I would say it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to, I don't know what this, you know, we didn't look up what the demands of this race are. I'm guessing if it's in the Andes, it's probably like super mountainous. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, maybe it's going to be probably going to be a mixed surface event. It's not going to be all road. It's going to be some gravel and, High altitude. I don't know. Yeah, high altitude. I mean, like, there's a. It's probably gonna be super hard. Um, but I would. I mean, I would say, you know, from your lead up now till May, like, I, I think a reverse periodization kind of approach would make sense, uh, where you're doing more intensity between now and May than you are from May to November, because it's mm-hmm. going to be critical that you just in, get as much volume in as possible between May and November. Yeah. Assuming this person lives in the Northern Hemisphere, this is actually a pretty decent structure because the ultra race is in November, which means that when this person needs to be putting in the biggest miles, it's the summertime and it's great weather to be putting in big miles. I just realized it's Byron, not Brian. I apologize. I read it as Brian, but I'm looking at your signature because I'm trying to figure out where you live. And it's Byron. So I apologize, Byron. Uh, It's probably gotten that his whole life. (laughs) Byron's signature, I don't want to give too much info out here, but um, sounds like they work for an organization that's based in Central America and the Andean region. Oh, okay. Well, never mind. Sounds like maybe they're in either Central America or in the Andes, which which is cool. I think the good thing is that you'll, either way, you're going to be in more of like a mountainous type area. Um, Mm -hmm. maybe not at the elevation that you'll be at in the Andes depends on where you actually live, but, um, you know, at least you'll have exposure to the terrain, you know, similar terrain. Yep. I can do like a, basically just do a double peak. Yeah. Double peak season where you focus on the one because like those two events are so spread out. I mean, that's five or six months between May to November. That's a six month gap. You could, 
you could just treat each of those as their own season, basically. And peak exactly. Yeah. 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 And even take that mid season <clears throat> break, you know, maybe Absolutely. take two weeks yeah. off after May. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So with only a couple more minutes here, um, there's another ultra related question that I figured I would throw in here. Cause it's somewhat related. Uh, this one comes from Lewis. So Lewis specifically wants to know about how they should prepare for excessive hike bikes that will be part of an ultra that they are doing in New Zealand. Uh, so curious how and when in your training you would go about including some preparation for this. So I'm not even kidding. When I, when I was a junior, and like cyclocross was my main thing. I would be in the middle of a climb on pavement and I would just in the middle of like a hard effort, just jump off and start running up the pavement in my cycling shoes Ugh. next to my bike to practice the cyclocross no. and then Ugh. jump back on my bike and keep going. Oh man, I was on dedicated pavement. Oh. on pavement yeah. during a hard effort. Yeah. Up a hill. Only man, on that hills. is, well, that is a clear example of what you don't do. All right. Well, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't do that anymore. I mean, I, I think it's as th- this is a fairly straightforward question. I think it's about specificity. If you're gonna have a significant amount of hike bikes, practice hike bikes, and I would recommend go. the The one time I knew that there was going to be hike bikes in the race, it was when I was training for Laruda, mm. which is a stage race in Costa Rica that has notorious hike bike sections. And what I did was I, the the trails that I typically ride downhill mountain bike in Pisgah, I I rode up them and there were naturally sections that were so steep that it was hard to ride. And I didn't even bother trying to ride them. I just got off my bike and started hiking. And I think it's it's easily what you could do here. I think it's just about specificity. I would still try to stay in your training zones for whatever you're training that day. Just throw in some hike a bike as well. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily do, I mean, you can throw in hiking if you like hiking, but I think specifically hiking with your bike is important because that's specific to what you're going to do. Yeah. And kind of going back to Byron's, you know, our our response to Byron, I think the more specific you can have your bike set up in that case too, because it's a lot different pushing your bike up a steep hill when it weighs 25 pounds compared to 55 pounds. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, you don't want to get, into this 1300k ultra in new zealand and not have ever pushed your bike uphill that you know at twice the weight um i think so so uh lewis asks you know like should i consider using this the push sled at the gym which mimics pushing the bike quite well with higher loads uh i would i would say no like i mean i i get it maybe if you're at the gym already because you're doing a strength workout and you want to just get a little bit of extra you know, hike a bike specificity, that'd be fine. But I wouldn't go out of your way to do that. I would rather, like Dylan's saying, see you incorporate this into your normal training and, mm-hmm. you know, just do some of your training rides. Do like some intervals with your bike loaded up. Um, I, mean, I you think know. you should take your bike to the gym and you should do box jumps with your bike and step ups with your bike. That's what <laughs> you should do. And deadlifts with your bike. Instead of weights, just use your bike. Just use your why even go to the gym then? Just just do it on the trail. <laughs> just stop and do some bike deadlifts in the middle of the trail. Because that would be hilarious if somebody was <laughs> at the gym with their bike. Would not surprise me. I am sure there's, there's someone whole, out there who has done that. There's a whole category of like baby workouts where moms can oh, use yeah. their babies as weights. Oof. 
right. <laughs> and you can do different workouts so, using your kit. Yeah. So this great. is uh, this is a similar question to the one that sometimes gets asked about um, training for you know training for descending and mountain biking. Um, like somebody will ask, oh, I, you know, I'm a mountain biker and I do these long descents and I get arm pump or something, or my legs start burning because I'm holding kind of a half squat while I'm descending. And they're talking about these different things that they could potentially do in the gym. As somebody who lives in an area that has long, technical, rough descents, I'm just going to be honest, the more that I do long, technical, rough descents, the easier it is on my muscles to do long, technical, rough descents. It's really not much more complicated than that. Yeah, I don't know where Lewis lives, man. Maybe maybe yeah, he maybe. doesn't have access to hills, and yeah. uh, in which case, yeah, I mean, you have to try and f- get creative with your specificity here. Sure. I would imagine you live close enough to, like, a parking garage or something. I mean, anything. You know, it's like you just need some vertical that you're pushing yeah. your bike I mean, up. Now, now we're making a lot of assumptions, like this guy lives in Florida or something, but... <laughs> we don't know. But, yeah. yeah, I mean, if you have access to the type of terrain that you're going to be, you know, similar to what you're you're going to be riding in New Zealand... Yeah, like you just want to expose yourself to that. I mean, I I completely agree, Dylan. It's like kind of goes back to, you know, Byron's question too. Like, you know, it's, you just want to expose yourself to some of the environmental factors of the whole race beforehand. So, you know, there's hopefully not as many surprises. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's what we've got. Um, also, I think it's important to practice this ahead of time too because you might find that your normal riding shoes are not conducive to a lot of hike a bike maybe you get blisters or they're just like too stiff you get like foot cramps so you might Mm -hmm. you might find that you need like a whole different shoe setup for this as well yeah and you'd rather find that out now than in new zealand sure uh cool uh he's got a second part of the question which i'm gonna i'm gonna save for another episode because it has to do with uh uh mental headspace for the race um, we'll save that for another one all right cool so we'll wrap it up there sweet thanks guys cool all right see ya all right folks thanks for tuning in for the latest episode of the matchbox podcast like i said at the beginning you can send any questions or topic suggestions to matchboxpod at gmail.com with email title the matchbox podcast links to each of our social media pages can be found in the show notes tune in next week for another endurance training related discussion and learn more about how you can find that extra match for your next big event Catch y'all soon. Let's go. Ready to start working with a coach that'll make you faster? It's easy. Just go to the Ignition Coach Co. website and fill out our athlete form, and we'll connect you to the best suited coach for the job. You'll jump on a free consultation, determine if it's a good fit, and determine a start date. If you don't feel the vibes with that coach, well, then no sweat. We'll connect you to another coach that might be better. And then it's off to the races, or at least off to the training for the races. Don't wait any longer. Sign up today.